Hi, Onetha. Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and understand why people do what they do, keeping a career lens. Um, you've had a really interesting career that spans management consulting to now being a writer and ethnographer. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you do today. Hi, Eskarsh. Lovely, lovely to speak to you. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast. And um, yes, let me start with a brief background. So like you said, I have had a bit of um, offbeat career trajectory so far, and I hope it continues being offbeat. But I started with, um, I started, I, I studied business for my undergrad, and I my first job was with McKinsey. I did research for them um, for about a year before doing the Young India Fellowship. And I think that's where it sort of, you know, pivoted a bit. I um, then worked to set up this um, think tank within a university in in Rajasthan called the NIIT University and they wanted to do something with I think tank with a very Asian focused lens and then I studied anthropology and um, post that I've been working with UNICEF mostly in digital transformation and um, working on you know technology projects within UNICEF um, all this while I've also been writing and because I studied anthropology and it's sort of been my um, my methodology to approach storytelling or writing it's, I also call myself an ethnographer. So I've been writing throughout. I've been writing um, a bunch of different disjointed things. But most recently, I published a book on folklore, Kashmiri folklore. Most of my writing centers around Kashmir because I'm from Kashmir and it's um, my culture and very close to my heart. I also published a children's book last year. So that's sort of where the offbeat trajectory comes in. But in my day job, I work in getting things online. Um, getting organizations online and getting organizations to work at their best, most efficient using the tools at hand. Um, I also integrate this with my um, interests in literature, art, poetry, which is what I do with this website I run called Dark, where we try and curate interesting snippets of South Asian history and culture and put them online, make it accessible for audiences that read digitally. So that's a bit about, you know, all the different things I do. So it seems like you followed your curiosity all through from McKinsey to today. Um, is there a common thread uh, or uh, you, you're exploring new adventures as they come? Um, usually there is a common thread in my interest in what I like to call my side projects, which also means projects that don't necessarily pay me a lot. And those all stem from who I am. Those all stem from... Um, this this deep sense of identity so um, and, and very personal interest. So a lot of that you will see will have to do with Kashmir. A lot of that will have um, a lot to do with my interest in um, stories, in storytelling, in storytelling about my culture. So all of that, yes, I would say that's very, very specific and it, it, there's a plan with it. But interestingly enough, for the, the core career or like my prime day job sort of Thing that it, I've taken things as they come. I never um, thought I'd, I'd end up working in the digital space, in the technology space. I've never thought I'd end up working in development. So that has been a series of very beautiful serendipities, accidents that have led me to do what I do. And I think now I'm at a point where I um, can blend both because because of like my interest in storytelling, writing, etc., um, and anthropology and ethnography, I also work as a semiotician, and increasingly I'm trying to pivot more towards um, digital ethnography and using digital ethnography as a methodology to help organizations. 
And it seems like you're having a really successful dual career. Um, talk to me about the book. Uh, how did the idea come about and uh, what was the specific curiosity that led to the book? So the book is on Kashmiri folklore. It's an anthology of stories um, that live in Kashmiri oral history or, you know, in, in orality. It's a very, Kashmiri is a very oral language, as in that it's not a language that has a very rich body of written literature, and uh, most of it is not read. Um, so you hear it much more. I grew up hearing these stories, and I grew up at a time where these stories were popularly told, where you didn't have internet the way you have it now. You didn't have a lot of um, globalized media. So these stories were a part of my life, part of my everyday. Um, a few years ago, I started working on a project which put up um, things from Kashmir, cultural artifacts, stories, histories online. And during that time, I started collecting Kashmiri proverbs and Kashmiri stories, Kashmiri folktales. Um, our proverbs, proverbs are also very interesting because it's such an oral language. It's very rich in its metaphors. It's very rich in its like um, in its in, in its descriptors. It started there, and because I knew um, that I wanted to eventually do something with it, I kept collecting it. So I started my research about five years ago, and then um, I think in late 2017, my my now editor he reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in pitching for this book, and. Um, I said, yeah, sure, I can I can draft up a proposal, and I did, and um, I got the deal with Speaking Tiger, and since then, I, I then took six months off, did actual on-ground research, more than things that I knew around me, things I knew from nostalgia, and thing, things I knew out in my library. So I went a bit out. For six months, I did serious on-ground research, and then the next one year, I spent... Um, you know, just just uh, understanding my research, like reinterpreting it, writing, rewriting my stories, understanding the balance between telling my story and retelling everyone else's story. So that's where the book sort of came about. So it, it's a very, very personal project. It's something I've wanted to do always. Um, but I wanted to do a lot more with it, which I think eventually I will. Things like having it in the original language, having it online, having it accessible which I will hopefully do soon, but that was sort of the intent behind it. And uh, talk to us about the research, because you mentioned that a lot of it, uh, or you alluded to it, that a lot of it was disaggregated, a lot of it was in people's memory. How did you go hmm. about collecting it? What were some surprises and challenges on the way? So interesting uh, that you ask, because the disaggregation bit really, really crashed on me like a mountain when I started, because there were stories, there were stories that were translated by people all across like the last 200 years. We have colonial travelers who've come, who've translated stories. We have people from Kashmir who've retold these stories in English. And that was, of course, my first go-to, but those stories lack the nuance of the language. So, you know, when you translate um, something without taking into account the nuances of a language and to take into account the nuances of a language like Kashmiri, I feel like is so essential because it's so characteristic in the way we tell our stories. So a lot of these stories were devoid of a lot of descriptors. They had the storyline, um, they had all the facts correct, but they didn't really have the beauty or the depth or the granularity and detail of the way the storytellers tell stories. So then I, that was my first source. So then I tried to look for uh, books in Kashmiri. That was hard because like I said earlier, hardly anyone reads in Kashmiri anymore. Um, 
even to find those books, it was really hard. So I had to run from library to library, place to place, trying to just get the books, scan them, you know, just read them because my Kashmiri is not great to read. So I actually had to hire a tutor who taught me, made me read these books, and then I'd like transcribe them, translate them, etc. But then I also reached out to traditional storytellers, and I think that's where it sort of um, got more real because their stories were different retelling after retelling. So someone would tell me a story today and, you know, there'd be a few characters here and there. Then someone would tell me another, the same story on another day. It'd be a bit different. Um, when I'd ask non-traditional storytellers, people who I knew about these stories, they never remembered any stories, but they would tell me, okay, let us tell, tell you about this, like one interesting cultural nuance. Let us tell you about this one thing that, you know, we know of this um, one, let's say monster or this one, um, cultural like aspect. So interestingly, during this time, I discovered that more than folklore, uh, more than folk tales, actually, what lives in Kashmir in every day in speech is the folklore. There's superstition, there's rituals, there's beliefs that are so alive that even if people forget the stories associated with them, they will be able to tell you um, very, very specific details about what time you'd find a particular monster um, or what time you'd find a particular like demon. So it was interesting to see how pervasive that superstition, that lore is versus, you know, a narrative folktale. That was interesting. And I think that changed how I constructed or like put together the book completely. Um, in the end of the book, I have this um, section. It's called the Dictionary of Kashmiri Imponderabilia. So all these things that exist in our language, in our lives, in our cultures, but we don't necessarily articulate them and we, we sort of have internalized them. I've tried to describe those. So when I started, I thought I'd focus on stories and only stories. But throughout, I realized that um, that's not the important bit in Kashmiri folklore. The important bit is everything else that goes with the stories. The story is a mere articulation of this vast, like, cultural ethos that's in the back of your head, this very superstitious score. Um, and what I did during that process also was that I left a lot of words untranslated. So if you if you read the book, you'll see that, that I've, I've used original words from Kashmiri in the narration. Um, I've described Just them before example. each chapter. So there's this word called, um, let's say, dapan, which means it is said. And that's how most storytellers start their stories. I actually wanted to call my book that also. Um, but it's, it's, it's literal translation is um, in a Hindi, it'd be kehte hai, or in, in an English, it'd be it is said or they say. And most of my stories start with that. And it's very interesting when I wanted to name the book that um, my editor said, like, absolutely a no, because he said it's not an English word and people won't connect with it. But the funny thing is, every time someone who's not Kashmiri, finishes the book, they message me with the pun, you know, they message me with the word. And <laughs> I'm amazed that that's what they pick up because that proves my hypothesis that that really should have been the title of the book. Why do you think that's the case? Um, because it's, um, this whole book is designed around that word, I would say. It's, it's quite a lot like, you know, we don't know the veracity of this statement or this story, but it is said. And that's also such a, such a case of, um, it's, it's, it's an articulation of rumor, fact. It's a mishmash in Kashmir because you use Dapan for um, what's happening during the day. You use Dapan for what happened yesterday. You use Dapan for something someone else told you. Because the rumor networks are so 
um, deeply entrenched. It's a very, very common word in our ethos. Like it's not just a word, it's like a culture. Got it. Um, and uh, if you were to talk about or reflect on, say, the social networks that exist uh, uh, in Kashmir, um, mm -hmm. especially the ones that use this phrase or oral storytelling traditions, what mm -hmm. are some elements that connect these social networks? Hmm, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if there is, uh, if I could describe it as a social network. It's it's sort of something that everyone uses. It's it's just a figure of speech that's so pervasive that um, whether you're on the internet using social media, which is now you know sort of the space where a lot of Kashmiris communicate, in given that we've been on lockdown for like almost nine months now, um, that's where all the conversations happen. So I think. And, and, you know, it's a it's a complicated environment. It's a complicated um, space place, as you would call it, where you don't always trust what the the news would tell you. You don't always trust what the administration will tell you. There's always an element of suspicion associated with it. So the pan is 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 what you rely on. You rely on what your neighbor tells you. You rely on what people have picked up on the streets. You rely on what you've like read on WhatsApp, for example, today. And that is dangerous, very, very dangerous. And I think that's why a lot of the, the state or the administration is very careful about how rumor proliferates. Also the reason why, you know, they justify the internet clampdown. Um, because it's such a network of one person telling another person and then, you know, news spreading. It's, it's dangerous, this, this cultural tidbit, but it's also who we are as a people. Yeah, and it seems that uh, this evolution of trust is uh, mm. common with what's happening at a global level as well. A lot of researchers say that trust is becoming more peer-to-peer -peer rather than uh, institutional. Institutional. So it seems like peer-to-peer uh, -peer trust is what keeps uh, the society um, glued together and these stories play an important role. Absolutely. Uh, when you start a book, usually mm -hmm. one has a hypothesis, one has a structure in mind. You know, mm. in some cases, you also have a rough uh, sense of what chapters would be like. Yes. But I would imagine that since there is so much new information that you're uh, uh, learning about, mm. how much of that book turned out to be the way you thought it would be like, and how much of the final product uh, ended up surprising your initial writer? Yeah. So interesting because I have two experiences to talk from. So I told you I did a children's book um, two years ago, right. early last year, and then this book. So the children's book, I um, sent my initial proposal to someone this morning and I, I had a look at it. And it's amazing how it's exactly what I'd envisioned five years ago, hmm. the final product. Like it's exactly the same. I'd made a structure, a hypothesis and, you know, like a sort of a little blurb um, to, to just capture the ethos of why I'm doing the book and why I'm doing the project. And then I'd like done it section by section by section. And it's followed absolutely exactly the same pattern. Whereas for the folktales book, because I, it was a book based on research and not um, things that I knew or a story I wanted to tell, completely different. It was a mountain load of information that I had when, um, when I started. I had to deal with, you know, um, sources in Urdu, sources in Kashmiri, sources in English, oral sources sources from the internet. And I was so overwhelmed that while initially I thought the book would look 
very, very different, like a very traditional um, collection of folktales with like 50 folktales structured in XYZ way. It was not that at all. Um, I think through throughout... It's all I, like Panchatantra or Aesop's Fables or something? So that's what I thought initially it would look like. Uh, by the way, there's a hypothesis that I found out in my um, in my research that Panchatantra originated in Kashmir, and this is the place where it like sort of originated and went went forth to the world. But a lot of our stories are like that. So I thought that that's what it would look like. But then there's also this whole um, tradition of Persian storytelling that we um, we've like brought into Kashmiri storytelling because of the way the culture it has been. It's been very syncretic. There's a lot of harmony in these stories. Um, so when I actually sat down to structure the book, I didn't know how to distinguish, you know, the Sanskrit story from the Farsi story, the the Kashmiri story from the like proverb story, because there's a section that talks about like stories that are uh, stories behind proverbs in Kashmir, because a lot of the proverbs we use have background stories. So I really, really did not know what to do with any of them. But it was interesting because this was brought together the structure of this book came together from a conversation with a traditional storyteller. He's, he's a woodcutter um, who spends a lot of time in the woods. And he sketched out this whole realm of Kashmiri storytelling for me. And he started with, he started telling me about how there's like an invisible realm, there's the earth, then there's the underworld, and then there's the heavens. And then on the earth, there are these like mystical beings and mythical beings. And then there are humans and then there are animals. And I think I used that. And I didn't know that this very random conversation, chance conversation with someone would actually give me real clarity into how I'd structure the book. So how I ended up structuring the book was I've started with Tales from Patal, which is the underworld. Then I've moved to Tales from um, Zameen, which is the, the earth. Then I've gone to Tales from Janwar, which is animals. And then finally, I've gone to tales from Bolchal, which basically means tales from speech. So it goes from this like very mythical, big picture um, to humans, to animals, to speech stories. And I don't think it would have been possible without like a series of conversations. It was not how I envisioned it. It was not how I thought of Kashmiri storytelling. But I think, you know, these chance conversations really, really help you put your thoughts into structures you never knew existed. So I, I, I love that element of, you know, research where you meet all these people who think completely differently. This person also thought that Lela Majnu was like a Kashmiri story that happened in Kashmir. So it's interesting um, how this person whose outlook and view I would not usually trust actually helped me structure this book. How is your training as an anthropologist or a McKinsey person or somebody who did a master's in liberal arts uh, and, and other things that you've done helped you? Uh, with the discipline of writing this book, if at all? It it really has. Funny, again, you asked because I was telling someone about um, the children's book. I was sending them the proposal and I was telling them, oh, I do it in an Excel sheet. Uh, so <laughs> it's not it's not something you would normally think of, but all my stories are in Excel sheets, annotated with keywords. They have metadata, so I know where to find what. Um, and that's my first step. And that's, let's say, my McKinsey. And, uh, but when I, when I, sit down with storytellers, I try to like draw in, draw them into conversation with me. Um, it takes a while to build trust, have, in, have the local language, in the local language very often, sometimes not even because my fluency is mediocre by my standards. Um, so it's, it's, it's a process to get 
trust, to gain legitimacy, to gain um, sort of respect in their eyes, to see that what you're doing is of value and they should give you time. That's, you know, your anthropology. Then to like step away and look at it from a critical lens is your liberal arts training. And just the whole process of setting deadlines, um, getting things done, flushing out a proposal, looking at something else, it's also probably my business school training. So I guess every bit of what you do in life counts. Uh, you'd never know where your training will come in handy. If someone had told me 10 years ago that I'd be like using Excel sheets and metadata for, um, um, you know, collecting folktales, I would have, I would have probably laughed. That's fascinating. I mean, just uh, a follow up on that metadata question. Did you yeah. record these interviews? Uh, like on a lot of them. Okay, and then sort of use speech to text to convert them or some. No, what no, no, no. Like? No, so so um, I would, you know, I would do it by themes. So I would like use tags for, you know, animal story. Then I'd use tags for, um, you know, this is the interesting element that has been captured in this story. So, you know, a, lo a lot of how I selected the stories, um, I had 150-ish stories that I'd read or heard. But and how you I selected accumulated them in six months. That's phenomenal efficiency. Wow. Um, not, not, not six months. Six months was on-ground research. So a lot of the reading that I did was, in the six months after, so a year, gotcha. yes. Gotcha. Um, so sometimes I would, you know, pick up books and scan them on my like phone and uh, just read them, you know, later. But on ground, I was six. I, I was here for six months picking up things that I would later use. Um, sorry, I was I was saying that. Uh, so how I structured what goes in and what goes out of the book because a lot of these stories were very interesting or like very not interesting. Um, how I structured it was that I wanted to see, I wanted to include all facets, uh, bits about the, the, the most common characters, the most common tropes in, in Kashmiri, uh, in Kashmiri like folklore. There's, there's a particular kind of um, witch, if I'd like to simplify, mm -hmm. that is a very common trope, but I didn't like any of the stories that I heard about her. It was just not fun. But the fact that I had to make sure that there is a mention of her um, in the book, I use one of the stories. So I'd probably, you know, tag something with, okay, this is where this character shows up. This is where this character shows up. And I have to make sure that this character is included in the book is how I use the um, tags and metadata. Got it. And um, just to keep a track of the sources because... Yeah, I mean, otherwise, how else? Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like there are no digital records, even the Not at all. are spread apart. Um, what was the discipline of writing, actually? Because you had to, you know, do a lot of homework to just come up to speed. How did you mm. make sure that uh, you were able to, you know, put in the number of words required and, uh, you know, dedicate a, a certain amount of time to actually putting pen to paper? Mm -hmm. That is something uh, no one should learn from me because I work in bursts and spurts and I work very... Um, yeah, very like, moody. Yeah, I'm very moody when I work. A day or an evening or a week where you really, uh, you know, achieved hyper efficiency and creativity. Yeah. So a good thing that I tell myself and I and I always tell people who just, you know, are starting to, to write is that it doesn't matter how well you write. You don't have to be perfect. You probably won't even ever use it, but you need to sit down and do it. Like if you treat it as a set of um, tiny tasks to, f towards a bigger goal, it works easier. So sometimes when I'd absolutely 
no intention to write. I just sit down and pick a tale that I'd heard in Kashmiri and transcribe it. Um, then I, I transcribe it in Kashmiri. And then maybe two days later, if I had absolutely like zero mind space to construct beautiful sentences, sentences, I would sit and, you know, translate it word by word, really, really crude translations. And then maybe like next week, I pick up the same story and um, try and, you know, make the words a bit more beautiful. And then three weeks later, I'd pick up the same story and try to, you know, weave in a voice and threads and you know string it together in in a more more beautiful way really and also what helped was me doing different tasks so i i didn't i picked 29 stories eventually that i went with but i wouldn't just sit and write every day so i translate one story one day and then the same day i'd probably you know transcribe another one i'd probably like do other things that came with it like maybe create the bibliography maybe just work on the dictionary just to diversify what I was doing in a day so that it doesn't get monotonous. I don't have great attention. My attention span is uh, quite limited. So I, I have to do different tasks to keep my brain engaged. So I'd probably, you know, transcribe one one day, translate one the other day, try to beautify the other one the third day until it all came together. So I was working, let's say, in 29 different Word documents. <laughs> and I'd pick like two or three um, eventually to merge them all together into one manuscript. But I think that really the compartmentalization really works for me. Is there such a thing as writer's block? Um, yes, but I, yeah, I would say there is. But that, but that's for me. I think very often you yourself don't feel like you're up to constructing beautiful sentences, but. I mean, if you were to sit down and be given a deadline, you'd definitely be able to produce. I would definitely be able to produce it, what I think. Um, I think writer's block hits me when I have no deadlines. I work with deadlines. And even if I have, according to me, the worst writer's block, and you tell me you need something by tomorrow morning, I'd probably be able to do it. Yeah, perhaps the deadline makes you work harder. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you were constructing this book, it wasn't mm -hmm. an easy time uh, globally and also uh, regionally and perhaps nationally, uh, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, how did you uh, go about, uh, you know, putting yourself mm -hmm. uh, or giving yourself the headspace to be able to do this kind of work? Actually, I had finished this book May last year. <laughs> So it was um, it was with the publisher for a while before they got to it. <laughs> so for me, it was done. The chunk, major chunk of work was done by May 2019. Got and it. then I just did edits towards um, towards August, September. That's when I started doing uh, working on the edits. At that time, what I struggled with was this framing of Kashmir as, you know, this place who, this place which, you know, needs their voices heard and, you know, very, hmm, how do I say it, but very fetishizing the misery of Kashmir at that time. And I didn't like that. And I, that made me a bit uncomfortable. This whole framing of, you know, um, Kashmir as, you know, the voices are untold from Kashmir and that's why we need to, you know, save Kashmir. Um, I, that was the only know, bit I struggled with. Yeah, um, I think uh, in a way, um, mm -hmm. when you ask a, a, a random person about Kashmir in uh, in India or outside, mm -hmm. uh, it perhaps won't be the first thing that comes to people's mind that this Absolutely. is a land of stories and 
deeper traditions. Um, did you have to, uh, you know, face some surprising uh, critics on the way or by and large people were encouraging about uh, the nature of the project? No, I think the, 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 I think the good thing about um, being who I am and meeting the kind of people I meet is that everyone's very curious, they're very open, and they're very interested. And I think the fact that Kashmir is so much in the news in the last two years, people want to know more about it, and people want to know things that are outside of, you know, your usual despair, um, your usual news of misery, because all of that is true, and all of that exists, and people must know, but people must also know that there is all of this uh, there's, it's 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 uh, a cultural treasure that exists here. There's stories, there's spirituality, there's tradition, and there's a literary tradition, and that's very often ignored. And I think because people know very little outside of the conflict, um, people are curious. I don't see a lot of people who would uh, dismiss it. I think more. I think it just makes people way more curious. What's interesting, though, is that I um, recently in an interview said that, you know, um, there's only stories of despair because of how we've been treated by the, you know, by, by the Indian state. And a lot of people reached out to me saying that, you know, I should have kept politics out of it. But that's such a, you know, snooty thing to say, I would say. It's, it comes from such a position of privilege that you're able to disassociate politics from anything in Kashmir, you cannot, even wow. if you can disassociate politics from the text, you cannot dis disassociate it from the context because it's the context it's bred in. It's probably the reason why I got interested in Kashmiri story stories in the first place. Um, if things were normal, I'd probably not be interested, you know, because I wouldn't feel that my identity is facing erasure. I see. Uh, what's the most thoughtful uh, praise that you got about the book and what's the most thoughtful critique or criticism about it? Hmm. That is something I will have to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, my favorite like thing that anyone said about the book was actually I'd asked Wendy Doniger for a book quote. And the quote that they've used in the book jacket is quite nice. But actually what she said that was that it takes her back to a realm of childhood storytelling uh, and takes you into some someone's childhood, basically my childhood. And mm -hmm. I think that was really lovely because that's exactly what I wanted to recreate. Um, I wanted to take people into my childhood through this book. And that right. just made me so happy. It was also the first person who'd read this book cover to cover. And it was Wendy Doniger, of course. How did um, so I was fine. Oh, my God. I was so excited. <laughs> I was losing it a bit. I just could not believe that uh, this was happening. It was the best day. Yeah, I can imagine. And she was so kind, so kind. Um, she did it really quick, despite, you know, she was going through a lot of personal stuff and moving and stuff, but she still did it. And I thought that was the kindest thing anyone's ever done. Mm. Uh, any criticism that has come your way? Um, interesting, but I remember something really funny that irked me quite a bit. Um, this person um, told me that, no, he, he actually wrote about the book and posted about the book saying that, you know, this is such a, a uh, terrible act of propaganda because this whole book's aim is to show that Kashmir is a distinct culture from India, which it's not. And, you know, it shouldn't be done this way because, you know, Kashmir is a part of India, et cetera, et cetera. It's funny. And I wanted to reply to this person and I didn't, but maybe now I will. Um, saying that, you know, the word India is not mentioned even once in this whole book. So I don't know where he picked that up from. 
it's clearly a case of insecure nationalism. But I, it's interesting how people attach an appropriate meaning to things that where it doesn't exist. You know, it's not about India at all. I never mentioned the word India. It's um, it's a very cultural thing. But interesting that he picked that up. He thought of it as um, a project that I was doing to show that Kashmiri culture is distinct from Indian culture. I see. Um, have you heard the phrase man with a hammer syndrome? No. What is that? A man with a hammer, everything appears to be a nail. Ah, yeah. <laughs> have you read Clearly. <laughs> Sorry? Have you read some Marcel Proust? No, I have not, actually. I think uh, you'll be very proud of your recreation of your childhood memory. Ah, uh, really? <laughs> um, is there a connection between your uh, uh, projects like Dark, uh, which, uh, hmm. I don't know what's the appropriate English translation for that, maybe male? Forced uh, male, yeah. Forced, yeah. Um, is there a connection between that, uh, your book on children and uh, the current project that you're working on? Uh, it seems like it's an extension of uh, a set of curiosities that have a common epicenter. And that epicenter uh, vaguely appears to me as identity, but mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. perhaps I'm mistaken. What no, do you absolutely. Absolutely. It is It is absolutely identity. That's what it is. Um, in, in the case of the Kashmiri folktales and the Kashmiri children's book, that's very evident. Um, in the case of Dark, it's more about growing up, reading a lot of Eurocentric English language literature and um, being familiar with a lot more uh, Western art and growing up to realize what a gap there exists in your education and trying to remedy that. And it started because me and Prachi started reading a lot more Urdu literature, Hindi literature, Kashmiri literature, looking up artists that were South Asian. Um, and I think it grew from that. It grew from actually very appropriately, as you said, a series of curiosities that we had. And we we created it as like a personal reading group, a personal, you know, um, yeah, a personal reading group. And then just sharing what we read with others, hoping that they would too. And it's phenomenal, the kind of response we have to it. And the number of people who, you know. About it. Like, it seems like you're a very numbers person. Like, <laughs> high level insights about <laughs> Who's your audience? Who's most curious about the work that you do? So it's very interesting because it's different across platforms. On Facebook, the people who read us are uh, people older, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who know these things, who are familiar with it, but just haven't come across it digitally or in a while. On Instagram, uh, where we have most of our following, we have a lot of younger audiences, younger men and women from South Asia who have never heard of these artists writers before, but are curious and are genuinely interested in learning. And then from Instagram, they're redirected to our website. Um, Twitter, it's a lot more people across ages, but interested in in actually reading the full thing rather than snippets. So because Instagram, it's very it's, it's quick. The attention span is lower. So if I post a poem on Instagram, I have to make sure it's short and I have to make sure it's engaging. But mm -hmm. if if the same thing on Twitter, people will actually go to your website. The conversion is much more and then read a full piece, which is like 600 to 800 to 1000 words. Mm. Um, we then run a newsletter. And the newsletter which will is have dark or subscriber. So dark, same, same. Oh, it all okay. is connected. 
uh, where we do a weekly newsletter and the weekly newsletter is about 2000 people. And I'd mm. say of those 1000 actively read and respond and talk to us about it. And it's, it's super interesting, also overwhelming often. Mm. Um, but these people have been pretty steady over the last three years. I think we started with, you know, we, we picked at 1000 for a bit and then, you know, the, the next thousand came up and these people actually read all of our newsletters engage with most of the content and you know even if we're late by a day sometimes they will write to us and be like hey where is where is our dog for uh, this week so it's interesting we haven't been late in a while but uh, <laughs> usually do yeah um, it seems it, like it, i've been unsubscribed so you gotta resubscribe me <laughs> i will resubscribe you <laughs> yeah but then it's on social media anyway so you'll see it we we recently moved to whatsapp and started sending people WhatsApp broadcasts. And that also works really well because our format is visual. We use a postcard, like a image of a postcard I've seen that. with some text on it. Yeah. And that's very forwardable. So sometimes I get it from people. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool how it yeah. works across platforms. Have you moved to the Gen Z platforms yet? Like TikTok, no. Snapchat, no. and so forth? No, not at all, no. Why is that? Because we really, really could. We've thought about doing more content, but it's because Dark is um, a side project for me and Prachi both. And already so much energy and effort goes into curating social media, which is the bane of our existence. Um, and writing the newsletters and researching a new piece of work every week that we don't think we have bandwidth for it until we actually try and monetize it, get someone on board full time. And, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. then we could reach into it. I mean, the good thing is that you have the numbers. I'm, I don't, uh, yes. Have you heard of 1,000 true fans? Yes, yes, we have, we have. You have, um, like, we, today you have 1,000 true fans and you'll start yeah. seeing network effects quite uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Now we started printing postcard boxes and stuff right before the lockdown. So I now have, um, you know, thousands of postcards in my basement <laughs> ready mm -hmm. to sell as soon as the lockdown is over. Got it. What are you currently working on and what's an average day in your life look like today? And if you were to hmm. contrast it with the average day in your life uh, at McKinsey, what are mm -hmm. some common or uh, dissimilar themes that emerge? It's, it's a funny time, really, because um, right now the lockdown has thrown everything into disarray. But um, I'm working on a grant on Kashmiri Sufism. Mm -hmm. I am collecting stories of Sufis, saints, um, yeah, basically mystics in Kashmir. That's that's my prime project these days. I'm also helping Ashoka University run um, this series called Beyond the Classroom, which in which you know professors go online and do biweekly lectures on, on yeah. very interesting topics, which everyone should listen to. Um, that's something I've, I'm helping with right now. I'm also working on another project, which I would which is basically semiotics and ethnography. Uh, but I'll soon talk about it, be able to talk about it openly. Um, but otherwise, my day is pretty random. This this quarantine quarantine has uh, really thrown me off. Usually, but usually I'm an early riser. I start work early morning. I finish whatever I have to do before lunch, like my key tasks. And then after lunch, I just slow down a bit. Um, with When I was with UNICEF, um, we'd work from eight to let's say five and things were pretty easy as compared to my McKinsey days where uh, really like five o'clock. I, I don't think I've in the one year that I was there, I don't think I've ever seen daylight. Maybe maybe once or twice I've like left work <laughs> in daylight hours, uh, which I guess is not something I wanted, but I'm glad that was my first job. 
Um, so I never have to do it again. My preferences are pretty set. I really like my own time after after a full day of work, and I'd rather work in sports than uh, you know just linger in a work. Yeah. It seems like your mornings are blocked for deep work, and then you yes. slow and then you, yes. you know, go on with the work. Which is, I hope you know, a lot of productivity experts say that that's a good way to start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you uh, that you regret? about the way your uh, life or career has shaped so far in the way in which your writing manifests? Um, I guess it's something I've been thinking about a lot, but I guess because I do a series of this, these unrelated disparate things here and there and pick up things, a lot of my engagement I feel has been very frivolous. I don't have thorough expertise in anything. I, I would not be able to tell you I am fully this thing because I've spent xyz amount of time investing in you know completely understanding this subject or field or writing style or even project i think um yeah that's something i sort of regret because um i come from i mean my my, my family my people people i see are very deep into their profession my mother's a doctor my dad's an engineer my brother's a lawyer so they they know what they do but here is me doing like 15 things and an expert in none. Um, so I guess that's something I regret, but also enjoy. It also gives me life. So mm -hmm. I don't know if it's really a regret, but. It's, it's just a realization. Uh, may yeah. come to. Um, uh, to me, uh, from what I know of you, you strike me as a deep generalist mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. you know, as somebody who has various interests. That's nice. I'm going to use that. I'm going to yeah. use that. Yeah, I wrote an article in the Mint about it. Uh, in okay. fact, a lot of research about how deep generalists are critical for the future. Um, I mean, the, the summary of that is like people like Roger Federer, if you contrast them with mm -hmm. the Tiger Woods was trained. So Tiger Woods achieved mm -hmm. specialization and by one or two, he was already pretty sure what he wanted to do. Roger Federer's parents, on the other hand, uh, encouraged him to play a variety of sports. So he achieved the breadth, a bit like you did with your anthropology and liberal arts and then sort of dove deep into one thing so check this out a deep generalist it's, I a, will. it's an interesting concept um Anessa, are you able to switch off and uh, if yes how do you uh, relax hmm. yes absolutely i'm a big fan of uh, work-life balance and switching off and i switch off for days um i Hmm. I relax in different ways. I read a lot, I guess. I have a lot of conversations, and I think that's a way of me introspecting also through conversation. Um, yeah, I think I think conversations are a key way of me switching off from the world and, you know, just getting into another person's head and just understanding their lives is very important. It's an important way of um, de-stressing and just taking time out from my life. And I'm very curious, and I and I pry very deep into people's lives. I think that's what I've realized in this quarantine time also. <laughs> Me prying into other people's lives and their minds. I find that super relaxing and also a step back from my life the way I think. Also a source of like great insight for writing, I feel. You know, uh, just a few days back, we had a masterclass by this uh, uh, staff writer from The Atlantic, Olga Hazan, mm -hmm. Russian mm -hmm. refugee uh, who grew up in the U.S. in Texas. She's mm -hmm. written this book called Weird, 
and she actually mm-hmm. said the same thing one of her favorite things mm-hmm. to is to essentially dive deep into other people's life and which is why she became a journalist and writer so it's interesting how that, interesting yeah um it's uh, so she says that being weird can be a superpower uh do yeah. you, you are weird oh super yeah <laughs> absolutely 100% weird and how do you make it your superpower or how are you making it your superpower um i think i um i am a misfit wherever i go but also i fit wherever i go and i think that weirdness helps people trust me more or um, just be curious about me or like take a chance on me in writing in um, at work most often because i'm this like strange person that no one knows what to do with um, especially within the un system i'm you know this like strange person who's coming in and telling them all sorts of odd things and i think that curiosity that's piqued by my weirdness is what helps me access different spaces um same with stories same with like ethnography just people treating you as an outsider always mm-hmm. helps in getting access to spaces in ways that you know you're not you're not a threat because you're not an insider um you're not there to displace them i think because i work a lot in change management projects that really helps because there's an element so at the un yes um that really helps people trust me because i'm not someone who's their superior trying to tell them to do something i'm also not completely an outsider uh but this balance of me being somewhat you know strange and them not knowing where to place me helps them trust me a bit mm-hmm. more mhm i i think that's uh that's yeah i've also i've i've quite often consulted in organizations where i'm not a part of um but i'm sort of like from the outside but sort of from the inside um and it helps I love what Groucho Marx said, right? I refuse to be a part of any club that will have me as a member. As a member. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one aspect uh, as we come to the final moments of the podcast is your mm-hmm. UN life. How did you, mm-hmm. a lot of our readers actually uh, reached out and said, how did you uh, break into the UN system and what's the most uh, interesting aspect of, uh, you know, first getting a job there and then... Mm-hmm. Uh, making the job work for you and for the stakeholders involved so i got in very very randomly i it was a part of the graduate program i was doing we i mean it, we didn't have to do an internship but it was one of those university internships um and i saw an opening in uh, jordan it was with unicef innovation um in the innovation team and it was working with you know um syrian refugees in 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 two camps and i thought it was interesting i knew nothing about jordan i knew very little about you know the crisis so i thought i might you know i might as well give it a shot so i went there i did that and because it was a country office it was very hands on work and i thought it'd be super interesting and it was something i wanted to do and i think as a series of that i applied to unicef in kenya i moved to kenya and i spent 3 years in kenya with them um it was different I would say when I started because I came from a very different background I'd never worked in development and then I'd never worked in an organization that bureaucratic so navigating that in the beginning was a bit bizarre um things are slow things don't move at the pace I would like them to move in that system but I guess over the years I segued into projects that I thought were like better suited to me by intent or by chance it just happened so 
towards, I mean, the latter half of it, I ended up working on projects that were very, very dynamic, very fast, very action-oriented, and things that had tangible outcomes at the end. Because sometimes what can be a bit disillusioning is that you're working on these long-term goals with very tiny effects in the time that you're there, um, which is a bit disheartening, I would say. But in projects, for example, like the ones I worked on, which were very, very change management oriented, I could see shifts happening. I could move from country office to country office, helping them implement and be like, OK, there we go. You're ready now. You're digitally ready, you know, mm. and then you move on. Um, so I guess finding your space in the bigger system is what I would always advise people to do, not always sticking to what you know, what you can get. Also, I feel like it's very idealized. A lot of people want to work for the UN. I get a lot of people who want, who like speak to me, who want to work within the system. But I mean, it's it's fun, it's exciting. But I think most people don't always understand the kind of you know work that goes in. As in, it's not always fun in games. It's not always as fast-paced. It's not always as stimulating. Um, and that's something I always tell people that they should probably strive to work for organizations like the UN towards the later part of their career because the learning curve is not very steep if you start <laughs> your early career in these organizations. A lot has changed, actually, also. I was, uh, we yes. had Dr. Shashi Tharoor on our podcast a few weeks mm -hmm. back, and he mm -hmm. was you know, doing a deep dive into his career, and uh, some of what you said also resonated with uh, you know, what he mentioned. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for explaining this aspect of your work as well. Um, just Thank a final you. question, a final set of questions. Yes. A lot of what we do is uh, you know, try and explore how mentor-mentee relationships work. Mm -hmm. um, possible for you to reflect on some of your mentors, both um, who you consciously reached out to and uh, others who emerged as mentors uh how have they helped you what are some things that you've done to nurture that relationship if you have any advice for people hmm i don't know if i'd be best placed to answer this question actually can i can i skip it <laughs> absolutely okay um, um you know Neza, this uh, you know the way you shaped your career and you've actually uh, managed to create uh, you know a fulfilling career in two different uh, um, segments, not necessarily directly related, but I can clearly see mm. a thread tying all your curiosities. Um, any final piece of advice to you know people who want to write or people want to pursue something with intense curiosity, pursue a difficult project uh, that'll be useful? Yes, um, I always tell this to people who idealize you know, quitting their job and doing something new and, you know, something they've been passionate about always. But my advice to people always is you don't have to quit to do something completely different. You can have a side career. You can have a second life. You can be prepping for, you know, even quitting when you're like 50 and taking on your passion, but build towards it in your everyday. Find time for it every day. If you're not going to make time for it with your day job, you're probably not that passionate about it. Um, I understand that's that's just a bit harsh, but really we have so much time that we can start building whatever we want to do on the side into a full-time gig if we really, really invest in it while we're still, you know, making money, really. 
Thank you, Neza. This was such a delight. Thank you so much for making time for us in these challenging circumstances. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun.